Welcome to Happy Path Programming. I'm Bruce Eckle. I'm James Ward. Ha. 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 Here we are. Here we are. I just got back from vacation, so I haven't thought about anything technical in a while. Um, this is our first episode in a long time with just you and me. It is. It is. We've been interviewing people. Yeah, yeah. which is great. But uh, But in the meantime, ideas and questions and puzzles have been backing up brewing yeah building yeah because uh i think it was in april you sent me a um link to an article which talked about it it was saying that uh, when simula was created um the inheritance so simula was basically the first object-oriented language and Inheritance was actually like a performance hack or a, it was a hack for both. Yeah. Just in general, a performance hack, but it didn't have the reasons that it does now. It doesn't. And so, you know, this article kind of blew my mind because it's like, wow, is that true that we, we started with this hack and then people started going, Oh, you know, how could this be useful and meaningful? You know, inheritance sounds kind of mathematical, so maybe there's a way to and and it's like the real world. You've got animals and then you've got a cat and a dog and right. Just, yeah, just models the real world so well. Right. And see when I went into it, I thought, "Oh, well, you know, somebody before me had come come up with these things." And I mean, I I really didn't, you know, I remember small talk coming out, but um, I didn't do anything with it. I was, I don't know, working with C and stuff at the time. And um, then by the time I started working with C++ and figuring out how dynamic binding works, and then why would you do that? And obviously, so we can have this inheritance hierarchy and it has meaning in the real world. And, um, you know, there are books on... um, domain-driven design that, you know, works on mapping, you know, one to the other. And it all made sense. But this article sort of suggests that it, all of this stuff was after the fact, you know, it's like, oh, well, let's make up meaning for this. I mean, that's a little crude. A lot but, of the OO stuff is Well, just, a lot of the OO stuff and maybe just, just a lot of stuff in programming in general. I mean, yeah. if you look back at the history and, you know, how the, what... Yeah. Were, we do this because, but how often do we look back and see, is that true? Yeah, is that true? And what was it? I mean, like if you look at um, uh, Pascal where they had, and this was actually my first encounter with this kind of thinking, was that they said, oh, um, or at least it was taught to me that the reason that you had to declare all of your variables in a declaration block was because it was good programming practice. That's right. And then it was just lazy compiler. It was lazy compiler things. It's like, well, it's way easier to decide how much to allocate on the stack when you enter this function. If everything is defined at the beginning, it's just way easier. And, but it was easier for the compiler writer and not Not, for the, but But then presented as it was presented to me. And I think the professor, whoever was doing the presenting didn't know yeah. And, and so, so they didn't question. They didn't question. And how many things didn't we question? So then Smalltalk comes along and was just, I mean, really just recently I started thinking along these terms, which is that um, 
so when you look at small talk, its real benefit was you had this massive library of objects and you wanted to do something. You go, oh, this, you know, I don't know, mouse object does a bunch of things that I need. So I'll inherit from the mouse object and I'll make a, I don't know, a cell, you know, something that could be completely different, but it does what you need. And it's not really, you're never going to treat it like a mouse object. It just has some functionality that you're using. And then, so, and it's all dynamic. So you send a message. I mean, the fellow who created, um, I think it was Smalltalk, he created and he said, I'm sorry that I didn't call this, I don't know, message-oriented programming or anything, because the object wasn't the important thing. It was the sending the message. Well, and the thing that is, at least I think, is primary to objects is hierarchical structures. It's the polymorphism. It's That's what we've been taught. Using, uh, and what's the specific name of that um, polymorphism? Because there's different types of polymorphism. Oh, um, anyways, there's a word, there's a yes. name for the hierarchical mm -hmm. extension kind of based way of doing polymorphism. So here's the story in my head. Smalltalk came along, did it, did everything dynamically. So when you run a Smalltalk program, you send a message to an object, object decides, can it deal with that message at runtime? All dynamically. If it can, it sends you something back. It says method not found. Then it's up to you to figure out what to do. Yeah. Everything's dynamic, and you could build systems really quickly this way, but they were unreliable because you never knew when something was going to fail at runtime because no, you... No way to pre-validate that what you were trying to do is actually something possible. Exactly. And the same thing happens with Python. Unless you have a way to test every path, mm -hmm. you don't know whether that path is valid, whether it's going to produce something valid because, because it's all dynamic and, you know, very powerful for doing certain types of programming. You know, maybe let's say where you, it, you don't really care. Like you're, you're dealing with big data and if it fails, you go in and you figure out what's wrong and you keep going, but you can move forward at this really fast pace and get the results you need, et cetera, et cetera. But when you come back from vacation and you have 40 updates for your phone, all of which are bugs. Yeah. You're going, maybe we're not, maybe something's wrong. Maybe something here. foundationally is wrong. <laughs> so my story continues. It's like, oh, Smalltalk does all this stuff, and everybody thinks, wow, this is super powerful. We can build systems really quickly with it, but they're not reliable. So we go, oh, well, we'll fix that by shoehorning types into an object-oriented language, which we did in C++ and uh, Java, etc. So we, we went on, we go, ah, oh, types will fix it. Well, and the problem is that it's, well, I think we see this problem in the Liskov substitution principle. So what, what's that? So the Liskov substitution principle says any derived type must be substitutable for the base type. Okay. And because of that, the derived type can only use the functions, the methods, the member functions, et cetera, that are defined in the base type. It can't expand on it. 
Now look at that in comparison. It's not with, like you can't upcast. Or... Well, you you could or you can. I mean, and then you're tasked with making sure that uh, everything is is good. And and we've seen like like with sealed classes, we've seen that kind of making upcasting less. Um, you know, less dangerous or, or even, even safe, you know, yeah. that's, yeah. I mean, I, if, if it is, um, if your compiler knows about all the possible things that you can upcast to, then the compiler can say, you need to pass one. You missed one. Right. And, and yeah. Mm-hmm. And so that's where ADTs are. Yeah. And, um, I mean, when we were writing atomic Kotlin Svetlana and I had a struggle around this because I was going, no, no, upcasting is, has always got this open-endedness to it. And she she had to keep coming back and going, no, it's actually because we have sealed classes. Yeah. And it, it took a while for that to get through my head. But then I go, okay. But it still seems like... <sighs> so now with a mechanism like that, you can more uh, safely add functionality like you do with Smalltalk. But it's still, doesn't it feel a little, oh, what is this type? I mean, you're still figuring out types at runtime. So it, it, it seems like it's got some limits compared to what we're trying to do with, um, you know, reliability. Yeah. So, um, it, so, you know, my point was that the Liskov substitution principle is kind of diametrically opposed to at least the small talk benefits yes of object-oriented programming yeah you know it says well sure but you know you can't add functions and that's always felt a little weird to me and it's always been a little hard to explain yeah and now i'm going oh this is how did we get here how did we get here and i think it was because (laughs) did we get to the wrong place did we get to the wrong place because we you know, we started with, oh, look how look how powerful we can be with this. And then we discovered that with that power comes unreliability. And so, we, oh, we'll, we'll force types, we'll fix it, we'll force them in. And then we end up with the substitution principle. And now we have this like, wait, what, what am I supposed to do yeah. when I'm designing an object system here? And is this even, is this even sensible? I right. don't know, you know, and, and you know, maybe the answer is no. But in addition to that, um, I wonder it's because it, because we had this kind of backlash in the last, I don't know, 10 years. People go, oh, objects were a mistake, you know, pointless, and we should never think about them again. And I'm thinking, well, I don't personally, in most of my experience with this kind of um, thing is programming in Python where mostly I start with functions, I use functions, they solve my problem. And then every once in a while, something gets really messy and it takes me a while to realize, oh, if I make this an object, it solves the problem, but it doesn't mean that I make everything an object. It's not yeah. the it's not the uh, Java mm-hmm. approach to thing. Or I mean, I suppose you could say Smalltalk, but Smalltalk doesn't have that, the type constraints that Java does. Mm-hmm. and so, uh, so Java kind of ended up being the, uh, 
well, not the worst of all worlds. Obviously, we produce a lot of things. We, we produce yeah. a lot of things with PHP. That's right. So, yeah. yeah. It may not be the best way to judge it. Yeah. Yeah. I don't even know. You know, it's like, because people always come back and say, well, I can get this thing to work in PHP. I can get things to work in Python. Right. They're not necessarily the kind of reliability that I want to deliver to, um, you know, the end user so that I don't have to constantly be doing bug fixes. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. It's just, so anyway, that's kind of what's been spinning, spinning in, in my head. Yeah. Just like. One of the nice things that I've realized about objects lately, and I think it was actually John DeGoe's had said something along these lines, but when you have an object and you know what it actually is, then, then you should be able to know what, what you can do on that thing. And this is where you're saying like with small talk, you could do anything. Like it was, why you can send any message to any, any object and it, it can go, eh, I don't know. And, and now in most modern, modern OO, you hit dot in your IDE and it tells you exactly what the options are. Even Python, if you're using, um, static typing. Yep. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And, and with static typing, it is exactly what the options are. Mm -hmm. When I, when I'm in IntelliJ, which is amazing and I love it. When I'm doing JavaScript in IntelliJ, I hit dot and the list is like a million things long of things I can do. Some portion of those options is probably valid and some portion is invalid just because JavaScript, it just doesn't know. But the ability to, to either go to an API doc or I think we used to go to API docs. Now we just hit dot in our ADE. But the ability to have an exact verifiable list of things that you can do on that object is for me, huge productivity gains because now just hit dot, get the exact list of options. I see what the parameters are, see what the outputs are and, and you can guess has amazing value. Yeah. And then from there you can guess, okay, this is, this is kind of what I want to do now with this thing. And so then you, you know, start filtering through the list to find. And doesn't know, that answers. show how important naming is? <laughs> because if, if this Absolutely. is our mode of programming, guessing is what we do. And boy, yeah. that name would be really nice if the name would, if the name matches with the, yeah. the mental model that I yep. have for what I'm trying to do. So mm -hmm. if I'm trying to filter a list, it's great if, the the um, the method on that thing is called filter mm -hmm. <laughs> instead of I don't know I'm sure you could think of a lot of other names for filter but filter is the name that comes to mind for me so I'm glad that filter is the, mm -hmm. the, what's chosen there mm -hmm. the weird one is like like map I think is a is a pretty good name because it is it is a mapping from one type to another type um, but flat map this is the one we keep struggling with is like flat map isn't necessarily a great name for what, what the operation actually is. Yeah. It's, it's literally what it does. Yeah. Not the meaning. Yeah. It would be nice if it no was... one really knows the meaning on that one. So that's probably why we don't have a good name for it. Cause I think at one point there was, I feel like there was an apply, which was like, map yeah 
And, um, and maybe that was in Python. I'm not sure, but, but anyway, it's like, Oh, apply is probably a better choice than map. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but map does suggest applying to more than one thing. Whereas apply sounds like you're doing yeah, just a single thing. Yeah. So it's like, yeah, I mean, in some ways, flat map should really probably just be called map. It's just that you can't be because the, um, the, I don't think you can generally overload. Maybe you can't. Yeah. Maybe it would work as just map. Cause you, I think the overloading would only be on the parameters, not on the return, uh, not on the return type. Yeah. You can't, well, traditionally most languages you can't overload on return type. Yeah. You can have, I mean, you can have uh, covariant return types, but yeah. you can't. So the return type changes Not with the with with the inheritance hierarchy. Yeah. So, if, you know, if if you have an animal, it returns an animal. If you have a cat, it returns a cat. So yeah. um, that's that's the idea of covariant return yeah. types. But um, so it would be better if flat map was just called map, and it just took different a different um, function parameter type something because it really is just a map it's just that the function that you take has a different return yeah i think it was i mean now that you know at some point in the future we'll just be going yeah i want to apply this thing and i want to get the result out and don't bother me with the fact that it's flat or not just do the right thing yeah yeah i guess in the case of flat map at least it has the name map in it Yep. Whereas there are some other names that are used for that monadic, monadic functor. Mm-hmm. Um, what some of the other names for it are, but but they're definitely other programming languages use uh, terms other than flat map. Mm-hmm. What really drives me crazy is some APIs uh, like the Apache Spark API mm-hmm. has a flat map on it, and I think this is also true in a few places in Kotlin that I found. But the type, the types of the flat map function are not at all what they should be to be like an actual flat map. And it's so annoying when you encounter a flat map that is not really a flat map because the function parameters are not hmm. what they should be to be a flat map. Yeah, that sounds disappointing. Yeah. Um, it's like you're, you're hoping to use it as a monadic operator. And then all of a sudden it's like, Oh, the types are not what you need to be a monadic type. I started reading this book. Um, let's see. It's the Functional Programming in Scala by Chiuzano and Bjorn. Paul and uh, Runar, yeah. Yes, yes. Uh, who have both gone on to, to create the Unison programming language. Really? Yeah. Oh. So... Okay. So I don't know totally what their history is, and we need to just have them on the show sometime. But there we go. but they they I think discovered a lot of important things about functional programming and mm-hmm. FPOO in the process stuff. of writing that book, maybe. Yeah, and you know, just on their own journey in mm-hmm. Scala, um, and and I, I from what I've seen of them, it seems like that was a stepping stone to okay. There's some foundational things here that we need to just go fix at the at the foundation mm-hmm. um to make this better and mm-hmm. and that was uh, is it just unison. the two of them working on unison or is there they're the two primary ones that i know of but oh, 
but there may be others as well. Okay. So I only know all this through watching a few talks and following them on Twitter. And stuff. Well, so the reason I'm going through it is to try and, you know, increase my clarity, but also to see how we can achieve what we're trying to achieve with our book. And, um, um, but one of the things I came across was I found myself going, why are all of these functions inside of classes or objects? Why are they doing that? That's dumb. Why are they doing that? And I, I, I said, wait a minute, is, was, did Scala require that like Java did in Scala two? And Bill goes, yeah, yeah, they did. And I'm going, yeah, it's probably something I should have remembered, but, but it's just like after working with Kotlin, yeah. well, and for that matter, Python and C++, where you always had top-level functions, it's like it's so weird to see this artificial constraint that functions have to go inside of of classes or objects. It's yeah. it's, it's just yeah. It's but fortunately, Scala three took the hint and fixed that. Yeah. But but for a language that is saying, you know, we're all about functional programming, but you still have to put your functions inside your classes like Java. That was, it's like, well, it was weird. Yeah, that's yeah, yeah. Yeah. In hindsight, it was weird. I mean, at the time it was like, Oh yeah, you're doing this because Java did it. Yeah. It's another one of those explanations that don't actually hold very well. Yeah. Well, plus I know that they had to go through some artificial things in order to have top level functions, you know, ultimately they ended up putting them inside of classes as far as the JVM was concerned, but, but I don't have to look at that and be confused by it. Cause you know, when you see something inside of a class or an object, you're going, you're doing this for a reason, right? What would that be? And like, not just a arbitrary constraint reason, but a, a design reason. And then you have to figure out, Oh no, it's not a design. I just, it's so easy for your brain to get cluttered up with stuff like that. Yeah. 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 So. Yeah. Yeah. Back to your, to your kind of initial question about like, like, Oh, oh. Mm-hmm. it seems like it was just initially about a uh, performance improvement. Mm-hmm. Um, it was like the way to get a performance improvement. And it, we've evolved many, many, um, possible mythologies about why object oriented programming is, is valuable. And now we're maybe as an, as an, as an industry beginning to reevaluate some of that. Mm-hmm. Um, it's going to be interesting to see like where, where this all goes. But one of the things I've been, been thinking about uh, related to this is that we, um, Functional OO, I think, is is helped move us forward into some some very important things. But I think that what as we go further into this, we realize okay, there's something else kind of foundationally wrong with with even functional stuff. A lot of maybe not uh, some functional stuff in that when we call a function that talks to the outside world, that becomes a place where we can have unexpected failure, unexpected something, a state that is changing unexpectedly, you know, that gives us indeterminacy. And what our book that we're working on is, is really focused on is, okay, functional O is great. That's a step forward. Effect-oriented programming is the way that you can have a lot more determinancy 
in your system by isolating that talking to the outside world. And so I think that, you know, I did functional OO for a long time in Scala without doing effects. Mm -hmm. And it took me a step forward, but I think that there's even another step. And I think that there are other ways to solve the problem too. I think that Unison doesn't do effects. I think it, I think it uses something called, um, algebraic effects, which are different than like monadic effects, which mm. is where we're focused with Zio on monadic effects. But I think there is other approaches to solve this problem. But, but yeah, so I think that's going to be interesting to see like how kind of the world programming world kind of steps through oh, objects They're They don't really solve some foundational problems that we have. You know, we're talking earlier about the combinatorial issues with, uh, you know, I've got a bug in one function and a bug in another function and a bug in another function. Like we just like accumulate and they multiply. They They don't just add. Yeah. Yeah. And now, well, and you know, it's like, well, finding them for one thing, um, because you could write a unit test that might find the first bug, but not the others. Yep. Yeah. And, and, and when you start looking at, well, functional programming is filled with these tiny little functions that do very little, but they're pure functions. And because of that, you can combine them safely. But if something has bugs in it and you start combining it, you get this, this effect, you know, which reminds me of um, concurrency. You know, it's like, it's like, Oh, well, yeah, in the small, like the people who write the operating systems, they can use locks and threads at that level. But you know, what they're doing is, kept in a little tiny box and so they can see everything. But as soon as it starts getting bigger and crossing boundaries and things like that, then it becomes unmanageable. But the person who wrote the thing inside the little box doesn't, isn't aware of that. It's like when, when, um, when exceptions were introduced, you look at it in the small and you go, wow, this is cool. I just throw an exception and it gets taken care of. Yeah. It's caught here and taken yeah. care of. Great. And then when you start scaling it you up get to the level it, of complexity where it falls apart, it's unmanageable. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. And yet yeah. it's yeah. real easy to fall into that variation of what I keep yeah. calling the simplicity bias. You're going, ah, it works here. Or we were talking about, um, uh, when you, um, you know, how you agree on things, um, consensus. Yeah. So we were talking about consensus and I had struggled with this for a long time. Like, cause I went from, oh yeah, consensus. That's great. To my own experience with it, which, oh no, it's, it's, you know, it's unmanageable. But when you add that extra dimension of scale, you go, oh, well, you, me, Bill, and Wyatt, we can pretty easily work through things and agree on things. Yeah. But now, you know, what happens when we double, triple, you know, when we when we add a lot of people, then consensus starts no to break works. down. Yeah. And it's like, oh, okay. You know, when the people who designed Go, you know, there was like three of them or whatever, yeah. and they could just hash everything out among themselves and they could just do a consensus yeah. model. But if you, you know, on a corporate level, you've got everybody's bike shedding every uh, feature and it just totally breaks down. It's a model that 
works in the small, but not in the large. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I, I mean, you know, I think a lot of these things are like that. Yeah. We, we, we do the this. Currencies are obviously a super interesting one mm -hmm. where I, this was not even that long ago where I got bit by it's like some Java API, like date time formatters, like something like should like work by now. Right. <laughs> and I totally had a bug where, where it was, uh, it was not expressed through the programming model that this thing was not thread safe. And so I was calling it for multiple threads and sure enough, it was not giving me the expected results. And I'm like something foundationally wrong with the model. If, if I have to think about those things. Oh, right. and, and if I can even have bugs from those things. I had, I don't know, this is a couple of years ago, I'm sure, when I was working on the Java 8 book, and I kept coming across this assertion that one of the great things about constructors was that they were thread safe. You never, and I had repeated this myself, I go, because I think in C++ it is true. Um, so, you know, the constructor happens and you get the thing back and you can't mess with it in, you know, nothing can mess with it while the constructor is happening. And everywhere I looked, people go, yep, that's it. They were all echoing the same thing. And I decided, you know, I better sit down and figure this out. And I showed that, yes, the constructor is in Java is not thread safe. Yeah. And so all of these things, you know, oh, I mean, the whole model, I mean, clearly they just threw it in you know, Gosling and those guys just taught, they go, Oh, we should have threading. Let's just throw this in. We, we don't need to worry about it. It'll just work. Yeah. I don't know. And then it's just been one thing after another and they yeah. had to deprecate most of the thread API and, and, and everything, you know, it's, there was that thing where, okay, you can write this library and it works great for you, but it's not thread safe. Yeah. And to make it thread safe, you have to, do what? Synchronized or something. You have to jump through a bunch of hoops and, and, and you're going in the right places. I'm not trying to solve that problem right now. I'll just put the library out there yeah. and then somebody uses it and discovers, oh, this isn't thread safe. And it's like, oh my gosh. Yeah. And yeah. yeah, there's so many things like that. Yeah. Well, and it, there's things that are, I think maybe part of what our, our big point in our podcast is, is that the things that can bite you in programming shouldn't just be notes in documentation. The programming model should actually tell you this is going to bite you. And then you have to, as the programmer, it's right in your face and you ideally your program won't compile unless you've dealt with the things that can bite you correctly, whether it's concurrency, whether it's exception, you know, mm -hmm. error handling, whether it's whatever. Mm -hmm. And I think that we're evolving to that, but we have to rethink a lot of foundations to get there. Yeah, because it was just kind of thrown in as an ad hoc thing. I mean, the you, you know, if you would, if you were going to have this messy threading system that Java put in, it should be like, okay, look, you either have to annotate, you you have to put something in here that says, I have explicitly decided not to make this thread safe. So if you use it. In a program that's got threads, you get warning, warning, you know, something jumps out at you rather than it's just, oh, you have to be skilled at this. Right. It will. Well, you have to, you have to, uh, what likely happens, what happened to me with the, in that uh, formatter example or whatever it was, was I had to 
hit a bug, Mm -hmm. debug my program, realize that I had hit something that was not thread safe. And then of course, then, you know, after banging my head against my desk for a while, and I actually read the documentation, this is not thread safe. I'm like, yeah. And now mm-hmm. I know because that needs to be part of the type of that thing. Right. You know, it's like, yeah, you know, some information embedded in it that says boink, not thread safe. Exactly. And but, so well, the, warning. the, the threading, the <laughs> things that can bite you from threading need to be expressed through the type system, through mm-hmm. the compiler, through, through something that, doesn't just slip past you. That's right. Yeah, because you go, oh, look, I got, you know, it printed something out. It's okay. Yeah. 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 Exceptions are the same exact way. It's Mm -hmm. like, uh, except for checked exceptions, it's like, how do you know how this thing's going to fail? Oh, I don't. (laughs) You know, it just can fail in any, all sorts of different ways. Null safety is the same Uh as well. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, feels like we're, um, I think in the future, they're going to look at this whole period and say, oh yeah, they were just thrashing around trying to figure things out. And they went down all these um, blind alleys yeah. and, uh, and then, and they went way far down the blind alleys before things got, of, oh, oh, they went really far down, really far down. No, it is the solution. It works so well in small talk. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. yeah. I, so I don't, I don't write very much OO code anymore. Mm-hmm. I mean, I use, I think some, some key pieces of OO that, that are, that are important, like being able to put things into packages, like mm-hmm. that, you know, just for organizational an organizational aspect that's useful, but, but is that OO putting things into packages isn't necessarily OO. I mean, like, I think if you, if you take a pure functional, um, like a Lisp or something oh. like that then there is no way to like packages pack, mean more like organize in that way. Well, but Python's that way. It's all, it's, it's had packages from basically yeah. the beginning. So even if you note name the package, it says, Oh, well the file name becomes the package. Yeah. I would say that this is, it's kind of an OO construct of being able to organize in that way. Another one is to be able to like dot operate on a thing. Mm-hmm. Whereas I think in pure functional, you can't dot operate on something because there is nothing that isn't an object. There's it's, nothing to it's so, so what you always do is you always have a, you have all your functions and you pass your it's all arguments. value to a function. Mm-hmm. And so you, instead of doing dot operations, you're always doing that inverted way, mm-hmm. which I don't, I don't like program. I like dot. I like, and I think that part of it is what we were talking about earlier, which is my ID can tell me here are all the things that you can do on that thing. And so I get some. Right. Some you have a, easy... you have a thing you're starting with and you go, what do I want to do to this thing? Yeah, exactly. So I can put a dot and then drops which, down which the list. With that, so I would say that that's a, that's an OO construct that I, that is important to how I program. Right. Whereas if you were, if it was just arguments, how would you, you would say, oh, well, I have this argument. What function would I pass it to? It's like, well, how would, yeah, how would the IDE give you that? I mean, I guess you could look through the method signatures of all of her function signatures of all your functions that are possible. Well, in the library functions. Yeah. It just seems a little unwieldy. Yeah. And it's hard. It's harder to think about it that way. 
Yeah. yeah for so, me, it's inverted, but I know a lot of people program in that style and like it. Uh-huh. Um, but so I think there are definitely play, things from OO that, that I use, but polymorphism, that <laughs> hierarchical inheritance, I, I, I don't think I ever really use that anymore. I use ADTs. So mm-hmm. I, all the time I use ADTs, sometimes mm-hmm. in product types, but I do not. Algebraic use. data types. Algebraic data types. Mm-hmm. So uh, being able to to uh, combine different values into a named thing. So that's a product type, which is in Scala case class or data mm-hmm. class in Kotlin. Um, and then uh, a sum type, which is uh, which is something that can be a foo or a bar. Um, so we use the ver- pipe between it. That's one way to do that. Okay. That sum type. Uh, the the more classic way in Scala is a sealed trait, which mm-hmm. um, in Kotlin is a sealed class or something, right? But they didn't have. I mean, Scala two didn't have ADTs, so you could you could do a sum type. A, it kind of did. It, it just didn't, didn't have the nice in syntax. Scala three, it has a different way to do them. Yeah. But um, but in Scala two, you could do product types through case classes, and you could do some types through sealed traits. So you could definitely do it. Right. And then and then you get exhaustive pattern matching on the sealed traits. And yeah, I have to say the you know being able to say this or this or this as a type. Um, fits pretty easily into my head, you know, it's like, oh yeah, that's what I want to do. And then having the type system watch over all that stuff. That's, that's all pretty appealing. Yeah. Um, and I have, I mean, there are still situations where I do use polymorphism, but I mean, that demand that these things are all have this common interface. That's, I mean, well, there's other ways to do it. Like mm. now with extension methods, like mm-hmm. that's another way to add, attach behaviors onto things. Um, right. And then type classes. We've uh-huh. done um, a number of explorations into type classes, which is called uh, ad hoc polymorphism. Um, parametric polymorphism. With is, generics. Yeah, generics. Uh-huh. So there, there are other ways to achieve the similar goal than just inheritance-based. I spent so much time trying to fit the inheritance peg into a hole that I'm not. I don't yet easily have the big picture of, oh, this is polymorphism on a big scale and here are maybe the different Different places where you would use it. Yeah. Yeah, The different strategies. And can we replace inheritance-based polymorphism with all the rest of those things? Well, and what's interesting is in Java, inheritance-based polymorphism is kind of the only, well, I guess there's parametric polymorphism. Yeah. They have generics, which they added later. Yeah. Yeah. But I think a lot of my issues with Java are because there is a limited uh, number of ways to to achieve the the reusability um, goals, and so we 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 do jam inheritance into a lot of places where if you can if you can look at it from a different way, you're like, yeah, 
if we had some different tools and some different strategies, we probably would not be in the crap that we're in in this terrible programming model because we would have solved this problem in a different way. But in Java, we just like shove inheritance everywhere. Well, that's because it. that's what Smalltalk did and they were modeling it after Smalltalk. But, but then when you look at generics, you go, oh, that was another, because it's like if Smalltalk is like, yeah, you got a bunch of objects, you send messages to them. There are no constraints on what message you send. And then, you know, we have, oh, well, they have to be inherited from the same type to be able to use them using the Liskov substitution principle. But then the generics is another way to deal with that. Oh, we can't have the Wild West of Smalltalk, so we have to batten it down. We can only batten it down so far this one way, so we have to add generics to the other way. So that's that sort of supports my hypothesis that we're backfilling from a model that wasn't actually, we were trying to put constraints on it. And my argument is that the constraints were because of reliability. And I, so far I'm not talked out of that. And well, and, and what we're trying to do with the book is we're, focusing on the reliability ask, aspect of things. Yeah. I mean, that's our motivation. Yeah. It's like, why are we doing this? More reliable code. Yeah. And I think everybody can relate to that. Yeah. And ideally being able to put systems together faster, whether we'll ever reach the speed that Smalltalk achieved is another question. Yeah. But Smalltalk didn't have the reliability constraint. Right. So... And it's, you know, I mean, I don't think we can keep going forward. I think it's limiting the size and complexity of our systems too. Yeah. Is it's like, well, if you can't build a reliable system, building a big system that's not reliable is not really solving your problem. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And and then we're going back and finding bugs one at a time. Yeah. Whack-a-moleing our whack-a-moleing our way to but we never we never have a reasonable sense that it's reliable we we never we never know that it's it's like we go, oh yeah this is this is are we getting better or are we just adding more bugs while we're fixing these others right. you know it's yeah. and and yeah testing is sure important but it doesn't seem like we've been able to solve. I mean, just teaching people to write tests mm-hmm. has been this, you know, much bigger yeah. hurdle yeah. than we ever thought it. Yeah. I think we thought, oh, well, this is obvious. Yeah. You got to test your code. You got to test it so many ways that it'll give you a reliable system. Yeah. Yeah. Without, I, there's been so much energy put in, put into, making testing more extensive, making it easier, making it better, whatever, so much energy. And what we haven't done a lot of time looking at is what are the reasons why we have to do so much testing <laughs> to, to have reliable software? And is this a sustainable model or do we just need to change fundamentally how we build some things so that, so that we can get reliability through other better reliability through other mechanisms Mm -hmm. and building up from small pieces that are guaranteed reliable. Yeah. Yeah. I know there was this, this huge debate around types versus tests and, um, and 
I remember a presentation from somebody who is a big Ruby fan Mm -hmm. and, and they put so much emphasis on to testing and, and, it's like, oh, how do you validate the this thing? Because Ruby is, is more dynamic than Python. Yes, yeah, you know, yeah. it's like it's like how do you validate that this thing is 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 correct? Oh, you just write tests. You just write endless tests. And could you ever sufficiently write enough tests in a dynamic programming language, like to to actually be able to have a, a level of validation? Well, you just get a hundred percent coverage. <laughs> That's it. It's so easy. I'm being sarcastic. Yeah. And I, I just, I look at it and I'm like, no, there's gotta be better foundational models. It's a Zeno's paradox. It's Zeno's paradox is okay. You're standing across the room from a wall and now we go halfway that distance and we go halfway that distance and you never, you can never reach the wall, but because you keep having the distance. So it's this kind of asymptotic. So you can never, completely yeah. you can never really achieve 100 percent coverage yeah. i mean the coverage tools don't show you that <laughs> because well, they have a different motivation uh, i think yeah yeah i mean i just i even look at code coverage and i'm like it's all built on a faulty model, model. yeah and, absolutely it and is we... and then some manager says well just give me 100 percent coverage and then i'll know everything's good yeah and you go no it doesn't tell you that well and, and so many of these things are predicated on the idea that our system never changes, that we never refactor, we never add new functionality. And so, well, if nobody's using the system, it's great. Yeah. Yeah. If nobody uses the system, that's true. But if anybody uses the system, they're going to say, I need this. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you're always adding new features, fixing bugs, and refactoring refactorability is is such a there every code base i've ever worked on that wasn't just disposable i had to do i was constantly refactoring it mm-hmm. and for me type systems let me safely do refactoring and and evolve a code base in a way that that my my tests don't don't burden me from from doing that. In dynamic systems, refactoring is you don't ever want to refactor your code because your you don't know what are, you're going to break. You don't know what you're going to break, and then your tests break, and you don't know why they broke. And it's what I do now is I refactor my typed code, and as soon as my code compiles, I'm like sweet, I've got a pretty darn good uh, level of assurance that my chain, my big refactor that I just did, that that this is going to work. But then I run my tests and usually you have to also do some refactoring on my tests because I've changed, you know, something. But then refactor my tests and then my tests pass and I'm like, okay, I now have just as much confidence that this thing, that uh, this huge refactor that I just did, I have just as much confidence that it works as well now as it did before. So when you do that, um, I mean, when you're writing, okay, a functional system and you have tests still, do you find that you have fewer tests or Uh, with functional systems? Yeah. With, with pure functions. Yes. But, but really for me, the type system, a strong type system is, is the biggest factor in that. Um, 
pure functions help a lot because there's just so many less areas that can go wrong when mm-hmm. you're in pure functions. Um, but for me, the types of the type system for me is is a huge level of testing. Mm-hmm. And if it compiles, you know, if I've called, if I haven't sent the a message to an object that it can't handle, the compiler tells me that. Mm-hmm. And so the type system gives me a lot of certainty around the the reliability of my system. And then and then there is a level of unit tests that give me another level of uh, usually around around logic. Um, is this logic correct? And then the integration tests give me really that like final level of, okay, my, my integration tests also pass. And, and now I've got pretty good certainty that, that there's very few bugs in, in what I'm about to... I've built a reliable system. I've built a reliable system. So when we add um, Zio into the mix, that presumably narrows the field of unreliability even more. Even further, yeah. yeah. Because we've isolated, we've made 99% of our system pure functions. Mm-hmm. And there's only this thin layer. Of- we've isolated all of the weird variability into these boxes, which presumably Zio is somehow constraining and has ways to test and things like that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, the concurrency issues, uh, fail, uh, exception, failability issues, like all that stuff has been isolated into pieces that give me some strong guarantees around what can go wrong and the behavior that, that is, that can bite me. Mm-hmm. And so we've isolated the places that can bite me into, into very specific spots and I can test those in, in specific ways. So I've just, I I think ultimately what I've done is I've increased the amount of my code base that can be actually tested with, with unit tests because they're um, well, and I've also increased the areas where the type system gives me, guarantees on on the types that i'm using so yeah yeah for me it's mm. it is a whole nother level of 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 reliability and the ability to be sure that what i'm delivering is is going to work in the way i expect it to it's very intriguing i mean i'm i'm looking forward to seeing how this plays out it's like i've got the basic framework starting to appear in my head but um, and the motivations and everything, but to see how it actually works yeah. is going to be, and that's what we're, you know, trying to express in the book. Yeah. 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 It's a lot of fun, but for the future of, OO, I think there are, there are certainly some, some important things mm-hmm. in, in, OO, but inheritance for me is, it's gone at this point. Like I don't need inheritance. <laughs> yeah. I, th- that would be an interest. Hmm, maybe this is going to be an interesting example would be to start with an inheritance, you know, I don't know, pets or shapes or something like that. And then show at least one alternative way to solve that problem without inheritance. Yeah. I, I would, I think that would be a very compelling. Yeah. Um, 
I don't know if that's a chapter or part yeah. of a chapter or something, but um, to show that and, and ideally maybe in more than one way, say, here's, yeah. here's the way you can do it. Yeah. 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 And in Scala 3, one of the annoying things is that we've got now three, maybe four different ways to do some types, to do ADT mm -hmm. some types. And that's, I, I don't like that. Mm -hmm. There should be one way to define a some type. And, one and preferably only one way to do it. Yes, yeah. that's the that's from the Zen of Python. Yeah, you know? yeah. Scala Scala definitely suffers from there being way too many ways to do things. Yeah. Um, so I'm not saying that Scala three is is perfect. I think it is an improvement that it embraces ADTs as a core mm -hmm. construct. But mm -hmm. there, I think that languages like unison have a chance at like getting a lot of this right because they don't have the baggage that they have to bring along and they don't have interoperability things to think about. <laughs> it's just like, it's like if you're building a language on top of Java, you have to support inheritance. Like you, you mm. probably just don't even have that option unless you just want to totally deviate from compa mm. real compatibility. Mm -hmm. Oh, right. Well, right. If it's a compatibility like, issue. Yeah. 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 Well, right. Um, so can we choose one, you know, our favorite way to represent ADTs and just stick with that? Where it's a little annoying in Scala 3 from what I've seen is that the the new um, ADT subtypes and product types are uh, you you get erasure on those. <sighs> and so if you if the problem that you're dealing with is fine with erasure, then you can use that one. But if you if you need the type information, then you have to use the, you know, I don't know if this all comes down to like boxing and unboxing or, you know, it's like, it, it's like the origin of, oh, oh, it's like we, we solve these problems and then you have to, you're faced with, you put onto the programmer, the onus of having to figure these things out. When should I do it this way? When should I do it this way? Because performance and it would be nice to like we've done in a lot of other places in programming like immutability and whatever is to, to be able to get to the point where performance is not the reason why we have to decide one approach or another. Mm. And with, with Scala and ADTs where I think that in, in a lot of cases we still are, the programmer is still deciding the approach and performance is one dimension to that decision. Yeah. I I know I've I've come across various ex post facto uh explanations for why erasure is a good thing. Mm -hmm. And I just because coming from uh C++ where we didn't need, didn't have or need erasure, you just, you know, oh, but yeah, that duplicates code, but that was never really a, it turned out that was never really a problem, but they even say that in explanations. I mean, I think I even read one that Brian Getz gave it at some point and he goes, oh yeah, that, that would be too inefficient from the code generation standpoint. And it, it, like at first there was a concern in the C++ committee that using templates, which is their version of generics, where the compiler would generate a different piece of code for each type that you use. Oh, that's that, that would be too inefficient. But that nobody nobody talks about that argument anymore, except in other languages where they go, oh, that would be too inefficient. But in C++, no. I mean, and if it is, you can always isolate, 
you know, you, you can write a couple of functions and you can have the function that is using the specific type information be a very small piece. And so it doesn't, it's, and, and so anytime somebody justifies erasure to me, I, that's where my brain goes. It's going, well, we didn't have to do it in C++. And you always knew what type you were dealing with inside of that function. You could do what, whatever that type supported. Yeah. Like that was pretty nice. Because reasons. And a lot of times in programming, those reasons are performance. <laughs> They're performance. Well, you know, when you think about vars and vals, at least, well, like when I started, I was doing assembly language programming and we had very limited RAM. Yeah. You know, that was expensive wow. stuff. And it's like, you can't just, you know, just keep creating this. Well, RAM and ROM, you couldn't, you know, you had to reuse that, that memory. And so our whole, but then it just became part of the culture that you would have VARES. And the idea of, of never using VARES was like, no, how would you do that? Yeah. But, uh, and but you go back, oh yeah, was, that was probably another efficiency hack possibly just like objects were yeah. who knows i mean i'm still mulling over that one article and you know wondering about its impact but it really does it makes you wonder about the whole thing and yeah yeah uh, it's it's pretty interesting yeah in hindsight yeah but all that time that we spent my gosh if you if you i i think you were too young to remember the the cloud versus box wars oh, yeah. do you remember yeah. those yeah yeah and i was like these guys were getting up on stage and like you know using uh what do you call it you know where you attack oh ad hominem attacks where you attack yeah. the person yeah. you know they were actually kind of or at least bordering on that going you know well you're stupid because you want clouds and you're dumb because you want to use boxes yeah. and and there was going to be all of this stuff in the object diagram was going to tell you everything well yeah. and there's another example of objects not really working out because it's like you know we we spent all this time figuring out how to do object diagrams and we we're going to have tools that would generate the diagrams and then there were people who were convinced that we could take those tools and automatically generate right. the code and they were I remember to a, to a program so yeah the automation of programs and and i remember somebody saying in a conference yeah we're 90 percent there well that was 20 years ago and, yeah. and it's like yeah. you know oh my gosh the number of times that i've heard 90 yeah. there and then nothing yeah i mean of like uh oh pearl six was it you know <laughs> how long has pearl six been 90 or maybe they did come out did, yeah. did pearl six actually come uh, out to know. to no fanfare at all because yeah. everybody had already left it yeah, I think like self-driving is one of those self-driving cars is oh. one of those same things where it's like, oh, we're so close. But that last 20% take us a thousand years, you know, to figure it out. Well, or it'll need, I don't know, constant machine learning or something like that to to be able to, because it's such a complex problem. Such a complex problem. And how can we survive unreliability issues? I mean, the thing is like, I go in a, you know, I'm riding in a Tesla. We don't have, to, it takes over so many of the um, functions. <laughs> so well, things. I know the easy things, but the things that require human intervention yeah. and that we're bad at. And yeah. my God, I was in, yeah. I was in LA a few years ago and we're on the freeway and there's this 
there's this big gap because this person is weaving back and forth across lanes and, you know, finally getting way around and passing her. And she's just like, she's like texting madly and doesn't no clue. I was like, well, the self-driving vehicle can take over or the most common uh, accident is rear end collisions. Yeah. I mean, even the non self driving cars apparently have, uh, you know, oh, yeah, my car. It, yeah. It's not like full self driving or anything, but, but it keeps but you from will, running in the car in front keep, of it. Exactly. You it know, will keep me from rear ending. Really, you know, and, and so. Which is a kind of basic problem. <laughs> it's a kind of basic problem that we've always had and, and has caused, you know, who much, how much, you know, costs and everything yeah. because somebody rear ends somebody and then the whole freeway comes to a yeah. stop. Yeah. And, all of these things that it can do that take pressure off of the human to perform, which we're just not good at constantly. And it's stressful. It's It's super stressful. Yeah. 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 Cause I mean, you know, you make a little mistake and you could be dead or, you know, yeah, you could, yeah, there's, there's all these, there's all these issues. So it can do all that stuff and that's great. But whether it can be, you know, how, what it takes to get 100% self-driving, yeah. can we do that with the current technology, that programming technology that we're using? Or, or does it need to start from a different point, yeah. like perhaps what we're talking about in this book? Yeah. yeah. And we will, um, I mean, I have no idea who's going to show up or whatever, but we're going to do a uh, like a little weekend workshop before yeah. the Summer Tech Forum conference. And on um, effect systems, effect or, systems, yeah. or you yeah. know, if all we do is get to the point where people go, "Oh, I get what a monad is for and what it's about, or the basics of it, or yeah. whatever," I'll be happy. And then we'll have the um, we'll have the process of trying to teach that to as a feedback mechanism. Yeah. And that's the two days before the conference. Yep. And that's just, one. that's part of, if you come to the conference, that's, that's part of it. Yeah. And we'll, we'll have to start, um, well, you know, doing this so that we get this feedback to show us whether we're that's right. be a good reaching people. Mechanism. Yeah. And yeah. I, it'd be nice to figure out how to start doing that on a regular basis so yes. that, as we, we go, oh, we think this chapter is good. And we try it out on people and yeah. they go, I don't get it. And then we have to go back. And Integration test our chapters. Absolutely. Through, through yeah. workshops. Through workshops. Yeah, that's the goal. So that is, that's this August. Yep. And if you go to summertechforum.com, you will find everything about it. Yeah. Including pictures of how gorgeous Crested Butte is in the summertime. Flowers have just been amazing. They have. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and we'll be doing, you know, hiking and mountain biking and possibly floating down the river. Who knows? We'll, yeah. we'll, we kind of figure these things out, yeah. but we have a good time. Always seems to be a way better time than a ice forward conference. For sure. All right. Okay. Well, hope to see you there. Yeah. Thank you. Well, I'll see you there. You will see me there. Hope hope to see our audience there. Yes. Hope to see our audience there.